Hear now the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I set the Cephas before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. It's good to see you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So, Lord, make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. We are going through Galatians and we have been talking about the true gospel and true grace and all these things. And one of the things that we have been going through is justification by faith. And um, one of the things that's hardest to do as a Christian is to live like that. It's hard to live that like we have been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's hard to live... So much so that in the beginning of this passage, we see a very, very interesting picture. Cephas comes to Antioch, and Paul opposes him to his face. Now, these are apostles, capital A apostles. These are the highest of the high in the church these are the people that Jesus entrusted the gospel to. And then you see one person opposing another person to his face. And I can just imagine what people might be thinking. There must have been shock and awe and just maybe even dismay. Maybe someone tried to break it up. I remember when I was in junior high, two of my friends, they weren't friends with each other, but two of my friends, I think I was in sixth grade, they got into a fight together. And all the people in, in school where I grew up, if there was a fight, everybody would surround them. You see, like, you know, 
the street would be filled with a bunch of kids watching the fight going, fight, fight, fight. And then these two are my friends, so I tried to stop them. I said, no, you guys can't fight. And I remember this huge guy who didn't even come to our school. Must have been like in high school. He like grabbed me and pulled me aside. He goes, you stop this fight, I'm gonna fight you. And I said, okay, <laughs> let them fight. <laughs> That's what I said. But we are in this kind of picture where you see Paul stand up and he opposes Peter, Peter, the apostle that a lot of people thought. This huge man for Jesus Christ opposes him to his face. And we are th now the picture must be like, what is going on? Was Paul this like rabble rouser? Was Paul like um, someone who creates fights? And we know that's not the case if you read Paul's writings. We know that Paul was tender. In fact, Paul in Acts 20 is talking to his Ephesian elders. And Paul is the one that says, for three years, I was praying for you. I ask that you remember that for three years, I was praying for you, not just praying for you, but praying for you with tears. As he talks to the Ephesian elders and Thessalonians, he compares himself to that of a nursing mother saying, I and we feel like a nursing mother taking care of her children. He compares himself with nursing mother. So he is very caring, very tender-hearted, but he was also bold and he had to be because in chapters one and two, what is at stake? The gospel is at stake. The gospel being at stake is of such utmost importance that we cannot as well as a church ever forget one and two. You know, people are always excited for the material. People are always excited, it's like, when are we gonna get the gifts? You know, when am I gonna sing in tongue? You know, when am I gonna start like stretching my hands and all of a sudden glitter comes out? When am I going to get these gifts? But the gifts in every single letter, in every single book that we read is always at the end, and we call that the material. We call that the, the material. The form is at the beginning, and we as a church must never forget the form. And in fact, even Peter, the apostle had to go back to the form. He had to be reminded of the form. And as Paul writes to Galatia, this is the form. This is the gospel. Not even one iota can be subtracted or added to the gospel. And this is the gospel. And so when you see what actually happened, it's Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And after he eats with the Gentiles, some people that claim to be from James come in and because they were people of the circumcision party or Judaizers, they, they go to Peter and Peter, I guess, felt pressured. He just felt pressured. We know that he didn't believe the Judaizers. He didn't believe the circumcision party. And by this, of course, I mean that you didn't need to follow the Jewish dietary and circumcision law to be saved in Christ because of what we learned last week. They were in full fellowship. Right hand of fellowship was extended. That means Paul, Paul, James, John, and Peter all agreed exactly what the gospel was, and they were able to completely fellowship with them and have unity. But even if they agreed on what the gospel was, when these Judaizers came, Peter got up from eating with the Gentiles, and he stopped eating with them and sat with the Jewish Christians. And even more than that, 
Paul writes about how even Barnabas was fooled. And so he ate with this group of people, the non-Jews, and then all of a sudden, when the Jewish crowd came in, he started eating with the Jews. And in today's society, I believe that we would see this, and you might think Paul, or Peter, excuse me, Peter was racist. And I believe in today's terms and culture, he may have very well been considered racist. But the interesting thing here is Paul wasn't attacking his racism. He was attacking something even deeper. The question is, what's deeper than racism? You know, in the 19th century, uh, and mind you, I am taking a little different approach today than the other times that I share, and I, it's because a pastor had shared, how do you continue to remind people not to live by works, not to feel like they're justified by works, but by faith alone. And he says, you pound it into them over and over again. So keep that in mind. In the 19th century, Presbyterians and other um, Christians, revival was happening. Revival happened. And these revived students, these young people, would make their way down to the Appalachia area to minister to the Native Americans there. And that was around 1820, uh, I believe. And in the 1830s, the U.S. thought that we discovered gold in the long Dahlonega, Georgia. And even if you go to Dahlonega's website, it says, as soon as you click on Dahlonega.org, it goes, it's pure gold. So they're still known as a city of gold. Uh, in the 1830s, we, we, we thought that we discovered gold. So we removed the Cherokee Nation in its entirety, uh, 100,000 Cherokee Native Americans. That whole Cherokee Nation was removed. And this is what we now know historically as the Trail of Tears. Uh, the edict that 100,000 people are going to be uprooted from their homes and they're going to walk to the Midwest was put down by the US government. And we know that in this trail of tears, about 16,000 of them died. What we may not know is when the revival happened, they made their way down. These newly revived Christians would make their way down to the Appalachia area, and they would also evangelize and proselytize to the Cherokee Nation. And what we see in our Christian historical records is among all the other Native Americans, the Cherokee Nations the Cherokee Nation was very welcoming and accepting of the Christian religion. So they became Christian. Um, we know this for a fact as well because while they were walking the Trail of Tears, they had the Book of Common Worship, which is Presbyterian, and they insisted on stopping three times a day in the trail to pray. Morning, uh, noon and evening and a third of them we see um, were christian and we just lifted them up out from their homes and why it was out of pure greed and fear and selfishness 
You may think, wow, that was, you know, in the 1800s, so long ago, it was terrible. Look at what these people are doing. Uh, the people that stood up and said, you can't do this. This is wrong. This is bad. Were actually the missionaries that went to the Cherokee Nation and saw their lives being changed and said, you can't do this. So they would go to the government. And these missionaries would um, protest and say, you can't do this. But the president, uh, Andrew Jackson at the time, just uh, disregarded all these protests and he uh, put down that edict. And we know about the gold rush um, that, that is in our American history. We can see a similar crisis happening today with immigration. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is our thinking informed by the word of God? Is our thinking informed by the word of God or is it by selfishness or fear of people of other places, people of other cultures that are moving us and driving us? Is it greed? You know, we might think gold, the gold rush is so obvious, but we have other words for it now. It's called, it's not in our best economic interests. Don't be fooled. You can call anything by another name, but what it is is what it is. And what we have to do is we have to look at multiple occasions in the Bible where we are taught how to treat sojourners, refugees, people of not this place, because God reminds us we too are sojourners. We as well, we are immigrants. I mean, literally, a lot of us are immigrants, but... We are sojourners. We are passing through as Christians. Um, I remember a lot of conversations I had with my mom because she grew up here when she was a kid. And I remember when I used to bring my friends over, people would just be shocked. It's like, your mom speaks English. And you just go, yo, ma. And then and she would just respond. And like, yeah, because she went to school here. And, but then she would tell me about when she went to school here, which is a long time ago, <clears throat> um, that people didn't even know what Korea was. <laughs> they would just ask her, are you, are you Chinese or are you Japanese? And then she would say, I'm neither, I'm Korean. And they would say, what's that? And then that's how she grew up. But we too, we have to recognize that we too are sojourners. What is even deeper than the biggest issue of today? I mean, we see it in our news feeds, in the articles that we read, in our social media about racism, immigration. But what can truly inform us? How does the Bible inform us about these things and situations? And that is, it's not just about behavior. It's not just about how you act and what words you use that make you not a racist or someone that is loving. It's not just about behavior. In fact, more and more people are realizing this. And I even read an op-ed where the author, New York Times, where the author brilliantly remarked how about it's actually the educated people up north, up on the places that they say are less racist who are more racist because up here we just learn to hide it better. We've been educated to know what to say and what not to say. And if people say 
what they are not supposed to say, then they're racist. Never once stopping to think that maybe, hey, maybe this was made up by a system to get me to feel better about my racism or even flat out deny that I'm racist. Uh, I saw this um, movie while I was on the plane uh, with my wife and she doesn't like horror movies. So I thought this was a great opportunity. I could watch all the horror movies by myself on the plane. And um, I saw this one movie that was uh, categorized as a horror movie. It was called Get Out. And it was written by uh, Jordan Peele, uh, directed by Jordan Peele. He's, he's like a comedian, so I thought it might be funny too. So it's like a funny horror movie, which to me, growing up in Queens, I thought would be the ultimate African-American movie. It's funny and it's horror. And, um, you know, I, I would tell people, if you really want to have a good time in a movie, you have to watch it in like Harlem or Jamaica. And then you'll see people just yelling at the screen and just getting up and say, I told you not to do that. Um, <clears throat> you know, I told my wife that I, ha I was going to tell this story and I was going to use an African-American accent. And she vehemently told me not to do that and that if I do that, that she would leave. So I didn't do it. So I kept my promise. But I would go to Jamaica and then I would hear people talk a certain way. I would go to Harlem. I would hear people talk a certain way. And then um, if you really want to have a blast, then watch a martial arts movie. Oh man, people just jump out of their seats and they copy on the movie theater. But I thought it might be something like that. But I thought this movie also, Get Out by Jordan Peele, even though it was uh, categorized as a horror movie, was really poignant about racism. Um, but one thing that people don't have the answer to is the answer. People just don't have the solution. Even if we change our habits and our speech, don't say this word. We're still thinking it. You know, don't act this way. All right, we won't act this way. But we don't have any friends of another culture or race. It's really hard. So we may sit next to you, but we definitely won't eat with you. And that's exactly what is happening with Peter. We may sit with you, we're not going to eat with you. I'm not, in the, I'm not in the mood for kimchi, so I'm not sitting with these guys, that kind of thing. And what was ultimately the deeper issue for Paul? In verse 14 it says, Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What's the truth of the gospel? In the U.S., if you take a poll, the... <clears throat> The poll that's taken, 25% of U.S. Americans believe that they are an evangelical, 14% mainline Protestant. Um, I won't explain the difference. You can look it up. But when you ask Christians, uh, even Catholics, about 20%, if you ask these people, if you die right now, and if, imagine I asked you this too, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Do you believe that you go to heaven? About 40% said yes. That means people who claim to be Christian, claim to know Christ, only 40% believe that they will go to heaven. And of that 40%, you ask, 
When you go to heaven, why would they take you? What makes you think they'll go, okay, come on in to heaven? 90% said some sort of merit. It's because I did this. 90% recited a merit. This means even today, 500 years after the Reformation, people don't know about the gospel. I think that is truly a devastating statistic. It's truly sad. It's Martin Luther who said, we are justified by faith alone, but not of faith that is alone. And we need to really realize what this means. It means that the things that we want to do the merit that we have doesn't get us into heaven. It doesn't justify us. But because we are justified, we get to do these works. Um, in light of the 500th year Reformation, we, we might think, oh man, maybe after 500 years, even the Roman Catholic Church, maybe they've changed. Because back when Martin Luther was um, living, the Roman Catholic doctrine was that rather than faith being the instrument of your justification, the instrument of your justification was your baptism, which normally is received as an infant. So if you're Catholic and you have a baby, you go through baptism. And they also believe that grace is required, faith is required, but it's mixed in with your good works. And this is absolutely true if you understand or know anything about the Catholic Church or you are from the Catholic Church. And as you perform works and participate in sacraments, you accrue more justification. Uh, this was an analogy that I heard from a man called Sandy Wilson, who he said learned from his professor. But it's like a bathtub, and there's a red line around the top. Justified means that you get the water level to that red line. Baptized means you put the plug in the bathtub so the water doesn't go out. And so as you are baptized, the plug goes in, and with the works that you do, the water starts filling up until you hit the red line, and then you're good enough for heaven. Mortal sin, then, is a sin that cuts you off from the grace of God or the love of God. So when you commit a mortal sin, the plug comes out. Water starts draining. You have to start all over. Uh, so that's why there's a second plank of Roman Catholic justification, which is called penance. That's where you see in the movies, a lot of people may not know anything about the Catholic Church, but you'll see, at least in the movies, they go to a confession booth, and they confess to the priest, and the priest gives you an assignment. That is called satisfaction. And then once you complete the assignment, the plug goes back in, and you start earning your merit again. So unless your Mother Teresa or the Pope or at least people like to think, you are going to be in purgatory for a very long time until you get all these sins burned off and fill that water up. And that's why if you have requiem masses for you, they give you even more credit, and then you get out of purgatory faster. Once you get out of purgatory, you become a saint, and you have this thing called supererogation, where you get more credits than you need. And when I, when I was reading about this, uh, it felt like, it's like when you're a kid, you go to the arcade, you put in tokens. You just need four to start the game. Super irrigations, you put in five, you get this one quarter back. It's like, nice. 
and then you get to give it to someone else who needs a quarter. So purgatory, you become a saint, and then you super arrogate, and you get more credits than you need, so it overflows. And that overflowing goes into the treasury of works, that goes to the treasury of the church, and through sacraments, they are dispensed to you. This is Catholic theology. And that was the theology of Luther's day. Um, just not to be mistaken, it's also still the Roman Catholic theology today. Pope John XXIII convened the Vatican II in 1962, and he stated specifically that what was said in the Council of Trent in the 1540s to the 1560s, which solidified this doctrine that I just told you about, he said, held to the doctrine set back then. He, um, quote, said, but from the renewed, serene, and tranquil adherence to all the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness, as it still shines forth in the acts of the Council of Trent and First Vatican Council. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that there are genuine Christians who are also part of the Roman Catholic Church because they believe that they can only trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That means they are happily inconsistent with their church doctrine. And for that, we should be happy too. But if you really want to know the truth, they as well see this truth, the truth of verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law, no one will be justified. There's no one that can fill that red line, period if you go with works. Uh, <clears throat> I was driving to church once when I was a pastor in training. I lived in Queens, so I had to drive, and I was up on Horace Harding. And as I was driving, uh, back then I was a little more um, not a keeper of speed laws. Today, these days, I only drive 60.49 miles per hour, but back then I think I drove a little faster than that. And um, a police officer pulled me over. And so I got pulled over. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to church. And he said, you know, he asked me for all my information. I gave him um, a PBA card that I had. Uh, my friend who I grew up with is also an officer. So I gave it to him. He asked me who it was and how I'm related to him. And then he comes back to me and he goes, you know, I pulled you over because when I scanned your license plate, it says your registration was expired. And actually, I looked at it, and I didn't even realize, because when you're a pastor, you're just like, your mind is everywhere, right? And uh, it was a month expired. And so he goes, you know, I have to tow your car. But because you know this person, I won't tow your car. And I was thinking, wow, one day that might preach. That day is today, um, but... <laughs> Because of someone I knew, I didn't get that ticket. Um, because of another name, I didn't get a ticket. And I was really thinking about how I can continue to share with you what justification is. And instead of just giving you line after line of doctrine after doctrine, and actually I had a dream this week. I don't really remember my dreams, but this dream was pretty interesting. I didn't have a car, I didn't have a home, 
and I was alone at the time. And I received a phone call from this woman who told me to go to this certain place. So when I went to this certain place, it was like this car place, and the workers brought me to a car, and on the car was this piece of paper. So the workers didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. I was just told to come here. And so I called the woman back on my phone, and she just says, write this name down. I don't remember the name. It was like Paul something. It ended with like a A-T-H-E or something. I don't know. Was, uh, so he just write this name down. And I said, okay. And I just wrote the name down on this piece of paper. And when I gave the paper back to the workers, they were surprised. And they muttered under their breath, was like, I mean, he has a business to run. And then I knew what they were saying. It's like, you can't just give this stuff away for free. And um, I remember in that dream, I got everything that I needed. And I remember I did absolutely nothing to deserve it or earn it. It was just because of the name I put down. I got what I needed not because of anything I did, but because I was given a name. True living happens after I get what I needed. True living can only start when a person is justified in faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. You know, Eugene and Hannah walked down the aisle and we can think of justification as like this line. You walk down this line. You know, we can say we're free, we're free, all, all we want is like, I'm free, I'm free. But if all we're doing is saying I'm free and we're just walking in circles here, are we truly living? But the line of justification at the end of the marriage, what, after the pronouncement of the marriage, what they do as man and wife, as true man and wife, united as one, free to live as married people now, is you walk down this line back. And you have to get out to live. You can't stay here forever. That's actually ridiculous. But that's what justification is. We can walk down this line. And even if we may wander, we have to be reminded, stay in the line of the truth of the gospel. And you come back, come back to this line, and then you continue to walk, and finally you get out there. And Jesus goes, then you will know the truth. If you follow me, you know that I am your justification. Then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Paul's basic line is this. God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture, anything that you did. Though you may be good and devout, in verse 16, your race and customs had nothing to do with your salvation. In verse 14, he says, therefore, how can you actually have fellowship on the basis of race and culture? To say that racism is a sin simply is not enough. Paul used the gospel to show Peter the spiritual roots of the mistake that he was wake, uh, making. That is why in church we believe that we bring all races and cultures not to mingle in one, not to make this one kind of just uniform thing, but we bring all these races and cultures that they are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we're actually lifting up everybody. And it is until we do that, what we are actually doing is just, we're just arguing about which culture is better. 
how I can pull you down so I can step up, how I can argue with you why my culture is better and yours isn't, how you should pay attention to me and I've been paying too much attention to you. How can we finally live that life? How can we live the life that Christ has for us? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are not who we are because of what we did. We are who we are because of what God did for us. That is our ultimate, ultimate identity. That falls under the lordship of Christ and everything is subject to it. There is no rule that supersedes this doctrine of justification. I'll leave you with this. Um, there was uh, a famous preacher that I like. I mention him often, Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon liked to smoke cigars. And people would always go, oh my goodness, uh, how can you smoke cigars? And he goes, well, I just light it and then I smoke it. Uh, he, he was kind of a joker. <clears throat> and then one time the great D.L. Moody, a very famous, famous uh, evangelist and pastor, visited Charles Spurgeon, the very, very famous preacher. And D.L. Moody was waiting and sitting on his porch Charles Spurgeon came out smoking a cigar. And D.L. Moody goes to him, Charles, you're a Christian and you smoke cigars? And Charles goes, you're a Christian, D.L. Moody, and you're fat? And then there was no more conversation after that. <laughs> the point is, we cannot add anything. We can't subtract anything. The gospel is that you have been set free because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Now the way we live is because we have been set free, we are free to live. Charles Spurgeon eventually quit smoking cigars, and that's because uh, one time he saw, you know those double-decker buses, the omnibus pass by, and on the omnibus there's these huge ads. Even when I went to Manchester, I saw these huge ads on these omnibuses, and on this omnibus, Charles Spurgeon was looking, and it goes, Smoke these cigars. Charles Spurgeon smokes them. <laughs> so he's like, mm, I, I got to quit. And so <clears throat> he eventually did, but Paul continues to talk about that as well. But we'll get to that. As we'll get to the material. We'll get there. We'll get to the spiritual gifts. But what we cannot lose sight of is the form. The form, the truth of the gospel. What are we walking in? And that is not by anything that you did. But because of what Christ did for us, we are set free. The name that we have been given is the perfect life Christ lived. That's what we have been given. So when we're up at the judge, judgment, then, then the, the, the judge is looking at us. You know, I can only imagine, even if it's just traffic laws, just traffic laws. Every time I went 0.1 miles over and that ticks, and they remember that. Even if it were traffic laws, every single traffic violation I had, 
I would never get enough money to pay off those violations. Not just the ones that I got caught with. Just traffic violations. But when we stand before the judge, there was this perfect driver who committed no violations, who was the most amazing of drivers that no one could copy because there's, it's impossible to drive perfectly. It's impossible. But he drove perfectly. And what's been imputed to us is his perfect driving. So when they try to judge you, there's nothing to give you. There's no ticket to give you because your life, what the judge sees is the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That's why we can live a free life. That's why we go, Jesus, continue to pour your life in me so that I can be like you. And eventually we get better and we get better at driving. And we only drive 64.9 miles per hour then. But eventually we get better and better. But never forget, we have been justified in faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. And Lord, it may seem like this is a drum that we're beating over and over again, at least in the last two chapters, but it is something so integral that even the greatest of us, like Peter, could fall. This is why we must be vigilant. We must be alert that we are always walking in the line of the truth of the gospel. I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to minister to us, show it what it means to live that life that truly is covered by Christ. Let's take this time now to pray. And as we reflect and meditate on what we've been given, how many times have we judged? And how many times have we lived not as though we have been justified by things that we have not done, but as if we did deserve because we thought we earned some merit. Let's repent those things up unto the Lord and let's fully confess to him that it is because of what he has done we are able to live life and life to the full. Let's pray.